The Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Federal Research Funding Opportunities for HBCUs for GFY 2020, a professional development seminar. Featuring Assistant Vice President for Research for Bowie State University, Dr. Anika Bisahoyo, Program Coordinator for the Air Force Office to Scientific Research, Edward Lee, Small Business Program Manager for the National Institutes of Health, Annette Owen Scarborough, Program Officer in the Directorate for Education and Human Resources for the National Science Foundation, Dr. Claudia Rankins, and Director, HBCU, MI Program for the Department of Navy, Anthony Smith. This session will feature program managers and officers from federal agencies to share upcoming funding opportunities. A select panel of program managers and officers from both civilian and defense agencies will discuss these opportunities. This seminar will also include a discussion of the government fiscal year 2020 federal research and development budget and targets of opportunities for HBCUs. Without further ado, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Federal Research Funding Opportunities for HBCUs for GFY 2020, featuring Dr. Anika Bisahoyo, Edward Lee, Annette Owen Scarborough, Dr. Claudia Rankins, and Anthony Smith. Good afternoon again. Good afternoon. Well, we can go ahead and get started. Thank you for your patience. I first want to say welcome to all of those that are sitting in the audience and also to our esteemed panel for joining us today. You are currently at Seminar 2448, Federal Research Funding Opportunities for HBCUs for the Government Fiscal Year 2020. And we're in the Maryland A Room. I'm supposed to mention that as well, so that you make sure you're in the right place. <laughs> So with that said, I'd, I'd like us to go ahead and get started. Um, you're really in for a treat in terms of hearing some of those opportunities that are out there among the agencies represented today. And there is lots of time provided for questions as well. So use that time to um, find out about some opportunities that may be of interest to you or even to get some strategies moving forward. Before I go any further, I just want to get a sense of who's in the audience. Can you let me know if you're from a university? Anyone? Wow. You, you said semi. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, it's such a short, small group. Honestly, can you, can you stand and just let us know where you're from and what your name is? Great. How about you? I'm in the wrong room. <laughs> I'm in the wrong I was in SAIC, and I, this is the first time I've been to the conference, so I just wanted to take advantage of the first seminar and see this about and just the more education I had, the more knowledge. Mm -hmm. That's the great. best group. You're in the right place. Yes. The best group. Yes. 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 So, you at SAIC has a lot of NIH money, so <laughs> you're in the right place. Yes. Yeah, great. 
Good afternoon, Denise Ferrosamani uh, from Silicon Valley. I wanted to mention that. I am currently the Director of Information Technology for Nextogen, which I'm the co-founder of Nextogen X, as well as the Executive Director of Fifth Wave, which is now becoming global. We have an online platform for entrepreneurship since I get a little bit of time. My <laughs> and um, so it's a pleasure to be here and, and learn more about how I can connect with each of the and possibly assist them and work on some partnerships. Awesome. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Aaron Freshwater. I'm working with staff HR, which is the acquisition uh, part of the Air Force. Um, my current role is HR Workforce Lead and uh, still lead. We're just supporting uh, K-12 outreach programs and excited to be here. Looking forward to the conference. Thank you. Hi, my name is Shalini Nikana, and I'm with Hamilton, and I'm the associate there, and I do um, health work, not as much with NIH, so I'm very interested to hear more, but I know Brazil and as a firm has some, some work in that agency. Thank you. Hi, I'm Cameron Wise. I work at night with Mr. Edwards Harbor on a small business owner office. Great. He's a Delaware State grad. Okay. Hello, my name is Danielle Moore. I'm the program manager for 0510. We're a medical device accelerator in Memphis, and we help medical device founders and startups to commercialize their concepts. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. That really gives us some context as we share with you today. So I will move into the format of today and then, and then our, our, the background of our speakers. So I have asked each of our panelists to provide remarks of about five to seven minutes so that you have an idea of, of what they represent and the funding opportunities that are available. And then we will turn it over to you to ask questions. So if you have a burning question, please write it down. Don't forget it so that you can have that time afterwards to follow up. So our first speaker, and I'll go through everyone and then have Mr. Lee come up. Mr. Edward Lee is the program coordinator for the Historically Black Colleges and Universities Minority Institutions Program for the Air Force Office of Scientific Research in Arlington, Virginia, one of nine directorates that comprise the Air Force Research Laboratory. He has worked for AFOSR since 1997 and is currently responsible for coordinating activities that provide funding to minority institutions across the nation. Mr. Lee has recently taken on the task of coordinating activities with the small business programs of SBIR and STTR, geared towards fostering the commercialization of products to the warfighter for the Department of Defense. He is now working to enhance communication between HBCUs and MIs to be able to compete for contracts and grants on a larger scale. Working in private industry prior to joining AFOSR and owning his own business since 1987, called EJL Associates. Mr. Lee has helped to establish and support Black-owned businesses in the Washington metropolitan area. Mr. Lee is also a graduate of an HBCU, Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, and in 2013 authored his first book, The Soul of a Man. So that's our first panelist, Mr. Lee. Thank you. <laughs> no pressure to the other ones, you know. That. Okay. <laughs> All right. Mr. Lee is the oldest member of the family. <laughs> <laughs> He's the wisest. Wise. <laughs> Next, we have Dr. <laughs> Dr. Claudia Rankins. She is a program officer in the Directorate for Education and Human Resources at the National Science Foundation. 
where she manages the historically black colleges and universities undergraduate program and the Centers for Research Excellence in Science and Technology, also known as CREST. Prior to this post, Dr. Rankins served at Hampton University for 22 years in a number of capacities, including chair of the Department of Physics, assistant dean for research, and dean of the School of Science. Dr. Rankins holds a PhD in physics from Hampton University, and she is the co-founder of the Society of STEM Women of Color, Incorporated. That's our second panelist, Dr. Rankins. <laughs> Next, we have Mr. Anthony Smith, who is a director, Mr. Anthony Smith Jr. Senior. Senior. Yes. Oh my goodness, my That's apologies. Right. That's right. <laughs> Who is a director for the Department of the Navy's Historically Black Colleges and Universities Minority Institutions Program that is focused on communicating, coordinating, and cultivating relationships of HBCU and MIs within the Department of the Navy's Naval Research Enterprise. In this capacity, Mr. Smith serves as the Senior Advisor to the Chief of Naval Research in the Department of the Navy on matters relating to strengthening the research capacity of our institutions, HBCUs and MIs, and increasing the number of minorities, undergraduate, graduate, and faculty pursuing internships, fellowships, and research-related projects with the Department of the Navy. Mr. Smith possesses over 15 years of numerous continually progressive assignments, including serving as the Science and Technology Director and Director of Future Technology, responsible for developing and trans transitioning numerous small business innovative research, SBIR, and science and technology projects, totaling more than $100 million. Mr. Smith is also a captain in the United States Naval Reserves. So last but certainly not least, thank you. We then have Ms. Owen Scarborough, Ms. Annette Owen Scarborough, who serves as the National Institutes of Health Small Business Program Manager and reports to the head of the Contracting Activity Director, Office of Acquisition and Logistics Management. Ms. Owen Scarborough has been responsible for providing operational and technical assistance on a day-to-day -day basis for acquisition and program officials, overseeing and managing special projects and serves an, as an advocate and liaison for the small business community, marketing their capacities to the health and human services, the NIH, and other government and private sector communities. Ms. Owen Scarborough has extensive administrative and managerial experience with over 45 plus years of increasing responsibility in the acquisition area. And that includes over 40 years of employment with the federal government. Formerly the acting deputy director for operations in the business utilization, excuse me, for the operations in the Department of Health and Human Services, Office of Small Disadvantaged Business Utilization, also called OSTABU. A senior small business specialist supporting the NIH team of four small business specialists. She has supported all 10 operating divisions at HHS as a specialist. So with that said, that is our final panelist. So thank you. And so I'll now ask Mr. Lee to give his remarks. Again, my name is Edward Lee. I work, uh, have the honor to be before you this afternoon to talk about opportunities that my organization has. I work with a group called the Air Force Research Laboratory. And in particular, my office is responsible for basic research or fundamental science. So we are called the Air Force Office of Scientific Research. 
We were housed actually in Arlington, Virginia at one time. We were close to DARPA and the National Science Foundation before NSF moved to Alexandria. So we were co-located in the Boston Commons, Virginia area, which was uh, close to the Boston Metro stop, which was, like I say, very close to where we are. Where we are. Also, we're co-housed in the same building as the Office of Naval Research. So my office is on the fourth floor and Tony is on the 10th floor presently. Um, real quickly, I manage several uh, programs. The one that's closest and dearest to my heart is providing funding to HBCU MSIs. Uh, I'm a little upset that the room's not full because we have lots of opportunities, lots of programs, and uh, like Victor McCurry said at an earlier session, if you're not at the table, you're probably part of the meal. And unfortunately, a lot of opportunities and money that's available, not just with the Air Force Research Lab, but through these organizations, we can't get it out if you're not sitting at the table. So uh, I have in my HBCU MSI portfolio a $4.5 million budget that goes to minority serving institutions to do basic research projects. I'm always looking to fund HBCUs. And unfortunately, if I don't get proposals from the HBCU community, it goes to the MSI community. And it's hard to balance the portfolio. Right now, I have about 36 projects that I'm funding at that $4.5 million level. And the number of HBCUs that participate in the program continues to decrease. And as hard as I try to balance and bring those schools up to provide funding, you know, it's a, it's a true statement that you lose 100% of your opportunities if you don't apply. Um, not just that, but one of the newest opportunities that's available with our organization, with the Air Force Research Lab, and it's all geared towards commercialization for those business owners in the room, we are now trying to push a new initiative. And the, the number I heard was $30 million that's available for HBCUs to partner and start to go into the small business technology transfer arena. And if you don't know, um, there's a somewhat of a differentiation between SBIR, which is Small Business Innovation Research and the Small Business Technology Transfer. We call it SIBA-STIR because we have our own language in DOD. Uh, the SDTR portion of the program small business has to partner with a university. And that's the differentiation between SBIR and STTR. So once again, there's $30 million potentially out there for schools to partner. And, you know, like I say, you have to take full advantage of these opportunities that we bring to the table for, for our universities. Um, I have some folders in the back that has some information about quite a few of the programs we have. I understand that some schools can't enhance their research capabilities because you don't have equipment. So we have programs that you can buy equipment. There's about a $40 million program called Defense University Research Instrumentation Program, or DURIP, and that's geared towards providing funding to universities. And most of the awards average about 250000 for you to put in your laboratory to enhance your ability to do research so you can compete at a higher level. 
another program I want to talk about briefly. And like I said, there's folders in the back with this information. It's called the Young Investigator Program. If you receive your PhD within a seven year window, there's startup capital available for you to start building your lab and the infrastructure for your lab. It ranges around uh, between 100 and $120,000 for multiple years. So in the HBCU MSI community, one of the issues that they've been having is they can hire faculty, new faculty, but it takes a while to get the, the lab up in place. So the startup capital or startup funding helps get your lab up to speed so you can compete because we all know some of the uh, issues with the HBCU community is if you're not bringing in writing proposals and bringing in those dollars that uh, your teaching load will begin to increase. So you may get a break those first two or three years, but as you continue to not bring in those federal dollars before you know it, you're teaching three to five classes a semester and that's almost impossible for you to do research unless you plan not to sleep and not to eat and work from midnight to seven in the morning and drink a cup of coffee and then you're back teaching classes. So that's one of the plights and I understand that's, you know, some of the issues with the HBCU in my community of teaching loads, but we're here to help. Like I said, there's packets of information in the back. Like I say, with a bunch of uh, programs that we have available. Uh, like once again, I want to stress this STTR new initiative for those businesses we're trying to push. And it's the mission actually of the Air Force Research Lab is to put products into the hands of the warfighter. And I know my, my partner on the end, uh, Mr. Smith, is, Mr. Smith Sr., is going to talk about widgets with the Navy, but it's somewhat the same thing with the Air Force Research Lab. You know, we are a mission-driven organization, and that mission is to put products and make products available through commercialization into the hands of the warfighter to keep the fight unfair. So it could be anything from a widget or a system or a tool or even, you know, material science. Uh, real quickly, we're part of nine laboratories that make up the ecosystem of the Air Force Research Lab. My office is out of the nine laboratories. My office is responsible, as like I said earlier, for basic research of fundamental science. But the other, and we do 6-1 research, but the other eight laboratories across the country from California up to New York, uh, they're responsible for advanced and applied research. We call that in the DOD term 6-2 and 6-3. And those labs include uh, aerospace systems, materials, manufacturing. We have an information lab in Rome, New York. We do munitions. We do sensors. We do aerospace. We do uh, uh, air vehicles and a couple of others. So I think my time is about up. I want to definitely engage you with the dialogue that will come forth after we get done with our introductions and open this up for a robust discussion about what we can do to help support, you know, at the HBCU and in the small business community. Thanks. Thank you. So good afternoon. Um, I have been for the tw last 12 years uh, in charge of the historically black colleges and universities undergraduate program at the National Science Foundation. We're one of the few programs that funds HBCU solely. 
so not other minority-serving institutions. So NSF is an agency. We have about 300 programs in all basic sciences, except we do not fund medical or disease-related basic science. We leave uh, that uh, to our sister agency, the National Institutes of Health. Uh, we have about a $7 billion budget at the foundation of which the HBCUR program gets 53 million. So we are like a small little bucket of the big one, but it's not an insignificant amount of money. Mm -hmm. So through HBCUR, I fund, we fund anything from uh, supporting students to supporting curriculum development, innovative teaching strategies, education research, but also faculty research, particularly the one you alluded to, uh, supporting young faculty at their entry into academia to get uh, a head start. As a matter of fact, when you look at the uh, innovation winners on that handout, three of the four, I know for sure, uh, awardees of HBCU up in my uh, current PIs. And I think actually all four are, but I'm not sure about um, the fourth. So uh, it's nice to see that uh, the PIs are making an impact in their community and are getting recogni recognized. I love that. So, so part of what we also do in HBCU up, and this is a new congressionally mandated initiative, it's called HBCU Excellence in Research. A new solicitation just came out. So um, Dr. Alabama A&M Provost, it's solicitation 20-542. And if anybody else is here from an HBCU, um, when you go to the NSF website, just put in NSF 20-542 and the opportunity will come up. It affords research opportunities for HBCU faculties in all NSF related areas. And if you're saying, doesn't that already exist? You have 300 programs. Yes, it does. But we have found that somehow um, when um, HBCU faculty or faculty from smaller institutions apply to the research directorates, their proposals tend to get reviewed a little bit under a different lens. In other words, my colleagues from these research intensive institutions will say, well, I don't know if they can do research at those small institutions and maybe, you know, it's too risky. Da, da, da. So it's the job of this excellence in research program, which I'm part of and the working group which I chair to connect HBCU faculty to the rest of NSF to make these one-on-one -on -one connections. So I'll let you in on a little bit of a secret. The way you get NSF funding is if you know the program officer. Mm -hmm. So um, sometimes at our institutions, we tell faculty, don't call NSF. You shouldn't be doing that. Only the sponsored research office should call. You need to make friends with your program officer in the program in which you want funding. If you don't, they don't know you mm. and you can't convince them that you are the one they must fund <laughs> because everybody else comes with good ideas too besides you. So how do they know to pick you? Um, there's also this little thing called peer review, but I only have five minutes, so I'm not getting into that. And that's yet another hurdle, <laughs> another hurdle to overcome. But so through this excellence in research program, we've already made about 90 awards of around $500,000 each to faculty. And they now are part of 
that program at NSF that funds their research, not part of HBCU up, you know. Um, I welcome you and I love you and we get 450 proposals every year and I'm happy about that. But the big money is in the research directorates. So I, HBC up sort of part of what we do is that capacity building to get you ready to go after the money at the rest of NSF. As I'm learning today, I have to expand my capacity building to making sure people are ready to apply to the Air Force and the Office of Naval Research and learn how to do some contracts with NIH. So, um, but that's getting a little bit ahead. So anyway, <laughs> we do have 300 programs in all basic sciences. So if you're a mathematician, chances are this is the only agency you can apply to for funding. The best way to, to look up what we have is at our website, www.nsf.gov, and just put in some keywords and you will find the information we need. Um, we have programs geared to specific institution types like HBCUs and we have an HSI program, we have a tribal college program, we have some programs that service all um, minority serving institutions, but the majority of NSF funding, I would like to get guess about 98% of the funding is open to all. So HBCU faculty have to compete with faculty from the research intensive institutions in the same playing field. And you were talking about teaching loads of three to five courses. The reality of life is right now with um, the dearth of faculty at HBCU, some of our faculty teach six courses per semester, not like at a, a, an R01, six courses in six years but six in one semester. <laughs> At the same time, they're expected to prepare that very same competitive proposal that the person who is at a research intensive university with a complete first year free of teaching, mm -hmm. right? So that is not a level playing field, you know. We, the HBCU up for our faculty, the hurdles are this big in the 100 meter hurdles and for the R1, they're this big. So that's a good comparison, I think. So uh, that is not to say that I encourage um, my brother and sister funders to uh, give special consideration to HBCU faculty. I just sort of want to put in the context of their work, why sometimes you will receive a proposal and I get them too, where I say, why did you even bother pushing the button? And where was the person at your home institution who let this through? because that needed to be stopped. Um, but for um, the most part with um, some help and, and some encouragement and some time given, um, HBCU faculty are as prepared to submit proposals as the faculty are from these research intensive institutions. And they certainly have the same preparation in terms of background, the same capacity to do research, um, the same strive to do research. Um, the plus, as I see it, they have at HBCUs, they can affect the students who are at HBCUs who um, 
want to as well do research and prepare for the next step and need very well prepared faculty, not only great teachers, we need great teachers, but how can you be a great chemistry teacher if you don't do chemistry research and can apply what it is you're learning in your research into the classroom? So we, we have like this built-in group of, of young people who are ready and eager to learn and become uh, the next generation of scientists who we owe it to, to be the very best when we are at HBCUs. So in return, we as funders owe it to the HBCU constituents to provide them with what they need. And so it's sort of a two-way street. Um, and uh, don't want to let the uh, institutions off the hook um, who don't always support their young research faculty or research faculty in general the way they need to be supported. And for those of you in the room who are administrators, you might want to give some thought to how um, this can be done in a very deliberate way, because trust me, there is a payoff at the end of the road. Uh, not just a payoff in terms of money coming into the institution, but in terms of writing the narrative about what HBCUs are capable of doing, um, what we can do for our faculty and what we can do for our students. <clears throat> so I had a completely different set of remarks prepared, but I somehow got a little bit inspired here to preach a little bit. So I'm sorry, I hope you, you did get the message that NSF is for funding basic science and we are here to support HBCUs and HBCU faculty. So thank you for your attention. Hi, good afternoon. Um, again, thank you guys um, for coming out and listening to the conversation that we're had, having here. Uh, I do want to put one plug in that uh, Mr. Lee and I do jaw on each other a lot, so it's just what we do all the time. Um, <laughs> we are at the same places, the same conversations, the same panels, and so at some point you get to know your panel members better than others, but he's still my big brother, if you want to put it that way. Um, we, we too, as well, Department of Navy has opportunities that uh, allow us to fund students and to fund faculty going forward. I, I do want to bring up one thing. We had a panel yesterday at ONR. Um, the panel is important. It, what was said is important. Um, HBCUs, both faculty and students, have a diversity of solving solutions. And I think that's what we're missing out here on talking about HBCUs and MIs, not just the fact that they have world-class um, faculty and inspiring students. Um, you're looking at a group of individuals, um, a community that's resilient, that you don't find everywhere else, that knows how to take what you have and make it out of something. And a short story, I grew up in Houston in Third Ward. We had what we call government cheese. And you had that stuff that you had to cut slices and put in the brawler on the bottom of the oven and make something out of that. So we're resilient. It doesn't matter what we get. We'll find a way to make a meal um, out of something. And that's what HBCUs do. You give them enough to make a meal, they'll give you a meal. But you have to give them something to allow them to provide the opportunity to you. So that's my Claudia Rankin preaching point. Do not be remiss that HBCUs have exactly what's needed 
to get your industry, whether government, uh, civilian, um, doesn't matter. They can do the work and opportunity. You have to be willing to give them access to what you have so that they can begin to give you what you're looking for. And without that, you find yourself continuing looking at the same institutions and wondering why you're getting the same answers because you're looking at the exact same people. So if you're not willing to get out of your box and your comfort zone, you probably need to find a new session to go to because we're not here trying to make you feel good about HBCUs or handout, but let you know that we have the access and ability to do the exact same work but you have to give them an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Amen, church. Ed mentioned um, Durup and Murray and Yip. The Army, the Air Force, and Navy have the exact same thing. Okay, so it makes sense for you to apply to, to Mary or Durup or, or Yip um, for um, HBCU faculty. Don't be limited to looking at the Army or, or the Navy. Go to the Air Force. So this is no plug for whether or not we do it with the Army or the Air Force. Just use Durup, as Ed mentioned, and Murray, and yep, find a way to apply to all three of those. Um, the worst thing you can do is miss opportunities um, in doing that. In my mind, I'd say apply to all of them, Army, Air Force, and Navy. Let someone else tell you no um, in that regard, as long as you provide a good product, as mentioned earlier, to, um, to do that. For the Navy's concern, specifically, um, we do have um, student internship programs for HBCU and in my students to go forward. Um, our student employment uh, internships are 10 weeks, eight to 10 weeks. Um, the minimum GPA for students is 3.0. Um, for that, we do provide housing in some of the internship programs as well as transportation for some of the internship programs. So the key thing and keep in mind that we are trying to find ways to inspire the HBCU students by giving them opportunities to do research in various areas. Um, naval aviation, uh, material science, which is my background, uh, computer science, we do have mathematics now, um, data analytics. So there are a number of areas which program that we have that allow students to compete and receive internship programs along the lines. I would say that although the 3.0 minimum GPA, the average GPA that we have is about a 3.65. It tells you that HBCU students are just as competitive as any other students. And I'm a biology chemistry guy at the end of the day, and so a 3.65 at any institution, any engineering program is not easy to do. Yep. No matter where you are, so don't be remiss by getting a 3.6 at A&T and 3.6 at Stanford. It's the same curriculum. E because MC square never changes at any school, <laughs> so it doesn't matter where you get it from at all times. Um, we do have faculty fellowship programs as well. Um, we pay for faculty to go out to the warfare center or lab for 10 weeks. Um, it's a paid fellowship. We also paid them for a travel allowance going to a warfare center or lab. I think that's important to keep in mind. Again, back to allowing faculty time to leave the institution and go to a warfare center or lab for the Navy and get a different spin on how we see um, technology to be important to us. You're listening to Federal Research Funding Opportunities for HBCUs for GFY. 2020, a professional development seminar featuring Dr. Anika B. Sahoyo, Edward Lee, Annette Owen Scarborough, Dr. Claudia Rankins, and Anthony Smith. Brought to you by the Global Catalyst for Change, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference, where we make the untapped potential possible. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, 
Instagram, and YouTube. Um, as Ed mentioned, we're, we're a Jenna Jackson thing. What are you doing for me lately? I don't particularly care how smart you are at your school and what you've done. What are you doing to inspire us to want you to come to the Warfare Center Lab? That's mutual benefit to have you there. However, you have to keep in mind, we're looking for widgets. What are you doing? The Navy says we really want that particular piece of information. That's an important thing to go forward. Um, even with that, for both the faculty fellowship and student internships, all of them must be U.S. citizens, and they must have the ability to obtain a security clearance. Um, and that's, again, the benefit of HBCUs is that most of our um, faculty and students are U.S. citizens. We do have a couple other programs that are specifically different from uh, some of our colleagues, my colleagues here. We have a material science startup program where we will provide this to the provost to hire at, at an HBCU, specifically HBCU, to allow them to hire faculty in the area of a startup program. And it depends on what kind of institution you have, R2, but we do provide funding for you to assist you in hiring faculty in material science. Um, and then I have contact information if you're interested in that program. And we are successfully finally just started our first postdoctoral program. It was mandated by the CNO about two years ago. It's taken us two years to get it going, um, but we're hoping to have our very first postdoc um, selectee going to the Naval Research Lab for two years. And it's an ongoing program, and it is designed just for HBCUs only. And the plan is to enhance the opportunity for HBCU postdoctorals to come out to the Naval Research Lab. Our hope is that we have a catering, a uh, courting, if you will, that you find that what we've given the opportunity to do at the Navy Research Lab will inspire you to work for the Department of Navy in some aspect, Department of Defense, to be honest about that. And finally, just for your interest, um, we do, I do sponsor a Naval Science Awards program from K to 12 in regards to inspiring the younger generation to um, become scientists. It's a science fair awards program. I offered them a letter from the Chief of Naval Research. They get a medallion from me. And they also get a gift card if you're in high school. If you win a regional fair, $50 gift card. If you win a state fair, a $75 gift card to do that piece there. I, the one thing I want to say, and this has something to do with whether you're at Lockheed Martin, SCIC, Bell, NIH, did I miss anybody here, Alabama A&M, wherever you are, you can be inspiring to a sixth grader, an eighth grader by participating in the science fair. So this science fair is open to anyone. It's our science fair, but we are trying to find people that look like you and us go to a science fair. And what you find is that students can aspire to be anything if they don't see something ahead of them. So wherever you are in your location, find your local science fair. We have 365 of those last year. I would implore you to go to a local science fair, participate, present an award, and let them see who you are. Um, I get that all the time when I'm in uniform. There's not a lot of African-American captains in uniform. So I get that look all the time on base. So I get the same look all the time as a scientist. I go, wow, you're a scientist. Get that look all the time. My two boys could care less whether I'm a scientist or a naval officer. They just see dad on their nerves at the end of the day. But everybody else see me as viable. So, but again, I'll be here if you have questions for you. Thank you for your time. I guess I'm the only one with a slide. You all a bit too quiet for me. <laughs> Hi, how you doing? It's after lunch. Good. All right. 
Mm -hmm. I'm Annette Owen Scarborough. I'm from the National Institutes of Health. And um, I think she's trying to pull up my slide because everybody's pretty much mentioned everything that we all do. And it's pretty <laughs> much similar. Uh, it's just in a different place and different policies. But at the NIH, uh, <clears throat> if you don't know, that's the National Institutes of Health. And we're one of 10 operating divisions under the Department of Health and Human Services. And what we've been trying to do the last five years in the establishment of this HBCU program is we've been trying to help you build capacity. We were told to be nice today, <laughs> so I cannot lecture you. <laughs> because I would say, I seen Alabama's back there. Any other, there's no other HBCUs in here, right? And, you know, I'm not gonna go through all this, but this first page pretty much gives you a descriptive of what's going on in, with HBCUs in the federal government. HBCUs have 40% of the government has discretionary funds. NIH has discretionary funds. What does that mean? There's extra money they have laying around and they decide what they're gonna do with it. What can they use it with? They can use it for anything they choose to, as long as they can justify it. Um, in fiscal year FY19, the government spent $560 billion and contracts, and of that income, 100 billion from 2015 with the HBCUs. Next slide. Why should we use an HBCU? That should be a question that we should be asking ourselves, or you should need to know. We have 50% of, 54% of overall revenue, and 36% of it goes to HBCUs. That's it. And we should be asking ourselves why. Next slide. Go to the next one. And you can get these slides, just send us an um, email. At NIH, that is a $6 billion entity annually. HHS, as I said earlier, for those that was in the other session, we are the largest federal agency that has acquisition funding besides DOD. That says a lot. We have 10 operating, we have 10 what they call operating divisions under HHS, for instance, like CDC, CMS, NIH, and so on, HRSA, uh, sort of uh, that way. But for NIH and pretty much for HHS, these are the only HBCUs that we have contracts with currently. That's Jackson State, who's had a contract with us for almost 20 years with the heart study. Morehouse School of Medicine just received this contract last year, and Tougaloo. Tougaloo is a part of that Jackson State Heart Study. Howard had one up until last year. Next slide. Now, this is how many grants we have. Uh, what's that? I would say 30 mm -hmm. grants for various HBCUs. That too is too low. We're a biomedical research facility. These are all the schools that have grants at NIH. Next. This is a slide that's very important to you. It should be. This slide tells you where all the money is at NIH. This is what we call our solar chart. NIH, um, in R&D contracting for FY18, we did a total of $5.2 billion. As you can see, the National Cancer Institute, now there's 27 institutes and centers out there for any, any kind of medical issue you can think of, we got an institute that can take care of it. And if they can't, they'll make up one, okay? So the National Cancer Institute is the largest institute that we have at the NIH. And as you can see alone, NCI did 
one, might as well say $1.2 billion in R&D contracts in FY18. And the next one is the National Allergies and Infectious Diseases. Now that's the institute that this virus is going on right now. They're in there right now trying to find a vaccine along with NCI. They're trying to find a vaccine. When Ebola, that Ebola vaccine brought out, that young, that young nurse that came, that uh, um, received it while working with patients, she came in to NIH and she was cured. So NIH has money. We do research. We do a little bit of everything. We buy from pencils and pens to cybersecurity, um, anything you can think of. Hampton University just won a $2 million grant from the National Cancer Institute for their proton studies. Mm-hmm. The state of Virginia has now given them additional funds to help them with that grant that they received. We were just recognized for that last week at NIH from Dr. Collins, who's the director of NIH, down to Dr. Alpha Johnson, who's one of the associate directors. We had a panel and we had Hamptons representatives plus the NCI uh, administrators who's handling that grant. Next. Oh, let me just tell you, NIH does not only R&D contracts, we do purchase cards, we do blanket purchase agreements, micro purchases, we got every kind of GWAC out there you want to think of, that includes task orders, and we have one of three uh, Office of Federal Procurements GWACs approved. There's NIH's NITAC, CISP 3-4, they're getting ready to do four right now, GSA, and NASA. These are the only three government-wide activities that have been approved by uh, the Office of Federal Procurement Policies. Okay, now I'm also the Small Business Program Manager, which also works in conjunction with our HBCU program. And why? It's because we match businesses, small businesses with our HBCUs to help them build that capacity. And if you can't get in as a prime, you need to get in as a sub. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Get your foot in the door somehow. And I'm proud to say, on my other hat, we had a 28% goal at NIH from HHS, and we exceeded it beyond 30%. We met all of our socioeconomic goals last year, except for our hub zone and services disabled vets. But as you can see, even with our services disabled vets, we met 2%, and that's the first time in NIH's history to get to that point. So we weren't in the red, we were in the yellow. And also, NIH is the only federal agency currently that has what they call a hub zone consortium. And what I did was I established a group of hub zones to come into NIH to help me talk about lessons learned, what we can do to improve it, and they are at the table and they meet with the chief contracting officers annually and I have a hub zone consortium industry day. We've had it for the last two years and we're trying to have one for this year as well. And for the HBCUs, that's what you want to do. You want to team up with small businesses, even with like SAIC, Lidos. Now, we talked about the largest university that's pretty much in the federal government, Johns Hopkins. At NIH, behind Johns Hopkins, we have Duke University. And, and I'm going to tell you this little story. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, when I was a contract specialist and, and a small business specialist, we had a GWAC. We had a task order contract at the National Institute of Child Health. 
So they were looking for schools to come in to do task orders. We had 19 responses, <coughs> excuse me, 19 responses. Of those 19 responses for task orders and subcontracting, not one was an HBCU. I was looking at the schools that responded. I had never heard of these schools. I'm like, where are they? And they were all over the United States, but no HBCU responded. That's what we were talking about, you all coming to the table. You, may, you can't come and expect to get millions of dollars at, at, at one time. Get $100 if you have to. Get a purchase order. Get a blanket purchase agreement. Get your foot in the door. Let them know that you exist. That's, what, that's, that's my advice to you. Next slide. Now look at this. This is HBCU's award in, H, in, in 2018. This is all the money that NIH out of $6 billion awarded to HBCUs. $2.1 million. Mm. That's it. And that went to Jackson State, Tougaloo, and Howard University. Next slide. Mm. 2019, it went to Jackson State, Morehouse School of Medicine, and Tougaloo. And it went down to 276000 Yeah, because you all are not pursuing opportunities. Mm -hmm. That's why. They can't just give you the money. You're not pursuing opportunities. No, the schools don't see the vision. They don't see, right, right, right. That's where it went down. Okay, next slide. It was a task order. Yes, they did. They went down. And you can tell you the funny thing about that. Jackson State, 20 years ago, had that total contract. And over the years, they've gone down to just getting task orders. They were in charge of that. Mississippi has some of that money now. Tougaloo has some of it. And some other schools down in that Mississippi Delta area. Jackson State has has their funding has reduced because they have not won the task orders. And from what I've been told, just like you all said earlier, you know, when you change leadership yes. from the top, it everybody comes in with their own visions. And I don't know, maybe that president didn't see the the necessity or the urgency to maintain that level that that initially had. That's why that cost went down. Okay, next. Also, did you know that the General Service Administration is looking for HBCUs to become a part of their schedule? Right now, Howard University is one of our HBCUs that is piloting, is doing a pilot program with GSA to get a GSA schedule. There are some other schools that have already received those schedule authorizations, but GSA is willing to work with us to get you on that GSA schedule so you can become more attractive because, you know, on a GSA schedule, they can get to you government-wise quicker and faster because you've already been vetted. Okay? All right. And, okay, and then benefits of GSA. As I said, the schedule, $33 billion, schedules are the premier vehicle for government sales, reduce administrative burden, professional services generate roughly $9.3 billion, and you get a gain of, of a competitive range. Next. And you know why it's so important, why everybody's jumping on the bandwagon for looking at HBCUs, it's because of that presidential executive order. And that order tells federal agencies they are to look at a way of increasing capacity for HBCUs in contract grants and corporate agreements. So all agencies are doing what they can. Now, are they being proactive with it? Some are and some are not. 
Next. And our path to excellence at NIH is self-explanatory. I just told you, we go out, we have six in our pilot schools. They talked about the 20 schools in the Carnegie Mellon um, authorization that have biomedical research. But you know what? All of you do some kind of biomedical research. Every school does. It's just that you haven't been classified in those specific areas. But all HBCUs do something. You, you do something that can be purchased by the federal government and the agencies. Mm -hmm. And do, do you know about NATE's codes? Mm -hmm. Any of you about, you know about the NATE's codes that, um, and capability statements mm -hmm. that have to be? We have webinars that we're training schools on with that. We just had a webinar recently on the GSA schedule. So my office is pulling together. We have a set of webinars and we're, and we're constantly doing trainings to help you all understand the government process. I know it's difficult. And, and with me, next slide, is this. I've encouraged all of the presidents that I've spoken with and the schools that I, that I deal with. Think about using your students in that sponsored program area. Take somebody out of your business department. Put them in there. Help them learn how to do government contracting. Howard University is going to be our first HBCU that will be piloting our acquisition training on acquisition and grants. We will be sponsoring this in a couple of weeks. We'll be launching it in a couple of weeks. And Management Concept, who is a major uh, training contractor in the federal government, will, has been working with us to develop this curriculum. So we are going to be utilizing that. And any school that comes into our program will have access to that training. OK, these are accomplishments. And you know, I, you know, we went to the US Virgin Islands last year, both campuses, and did training on site. But I need your help. I need you to help us to help you. I'm going to be working with Bowie. I spoke with the Bowie president yesterday. And we're setting up meetings to go out there because they have a they have a dynamite nursing program. The clinical center has a nursing program. I'm trying to get the U.S. Virgin Islands president as well as Bowie in to see these folks, and I'm planning to bring them out to Bowie when I come. The folks that I can get out there. So that's all I have. Anybody has any questions? If you need to contact me, I have some uh, some handouts that I can give you, and um, you can ask for uh, myself. I have a um, young lady in my office. I don't know where Rachel went, but I have another one. But Keandra is right there. So if anybody has any questions for me, don't hesitate to ask. And know that we're all working in conjunction together. We have the all the same end goal. Okay. Thank you. So we have about 12 minutes left. I, I first want to say thank you again to the great remarks by our panel. It's not over yet. We want to move into this next phase of, of getting questions from the audience. Um, as, as we had introductions in the beginning, we recognize that a lot of us are not from HBCUs, but feel free to ask questions that may benefit your organization or as you think about how you can better support HBCUs as well, feel free to ask those questions too. So feel free to come up to the microphone. Please also let us know your name and institution because I know we had some other folks walk into the room. Can I just can I just point out also, NIH also has a very rigorous SBIR STTR program, mm. and NIH is known for the largest grant program in the federal government. We have the largest number of grants, and we're responsible for that grants.gov website that you have to go to. <laughs> and like I said, Michelle Balls is the director of the grants program out there and we are working in conjunction with that grant program 
without training to help the HBCUs? Well, first, thank you, uh, Ms. Scarberry and all of the others for your comments. Um, they're very, one, very appropriate. Um, and we don't mind you fussing at us a little bit. Um, we're not so thin-skinned that we can't take some criticism. Um, but I also want to encourage you because justice is not done until things are just. Okay, so we have to continue to press forward with a firm action under the guise and umbrella of what a firm action really is. Uh, we call it affirmative action. It's not a good term for people to use in Washington, but that's what we need, affirm action. And Dr. Rankins was, was very, not prophetic, but historical in her statements about what our real capacity is relative to our challenges with our scientific faculty. Uh, they are stretched beyond the limit. And our resources and our infrastructure is not as such that we can compare. Now, we're saying what we're not doing, but we also have to acknowledge what we are doing. And for some of us, it's not even mission difficult, it's mission impossible. Hmm. And we have to be clear about this, that this is not just something that started five years ago, 10 years ago, it started 150 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now we have a pretty good game plan and, and playbook with USDA, but that was a forced game plan and playbook with legislation, 1862 and then later 1890, and we've been able to become a part of the Farm Bill and advocate for resources that are permanent through entitlement and, and other sources. But, mm -hmm. The issue is, is that you also have to understand that there are not just discretionary funds, but funds that have been going to our competitors, particularly in those red states in the South, it's called indirect cost. And if you look at the percentage of recovery from the larger institutions and the flagships, mm -hmm. and then the amount, well, that's more than our whole institution's yeah. appropriation and revenue. Do you understand what I'm saying? We do. Mm -hmm. And so that allows them to build capacity that we don't have. That is why we have to continue to forge forward. And even in these specialized programs and unique uh, grant and contract opportunities, many times our indirect cost is capped and it doesn't go to the bottom line. So presidents that only have a four to five year tenure, this is not their priority. Why? Because the indirect cost monies is so small, it doesn't go to their bottom line. And their number one mission is instruction, okay? So we have to understand that and wrestle with that, but we also have got to pivot. Mm -hmm. And so we, right. we're gonna to try to have uh, more meetings uh, with our partners in the 1890 community and HBCU community because we got to approach this as a consortium. Mm -hmm. If University of Illinois, is getting 1% of all NSF funding. Something's wrong with that picture. Yep. Yep. Well, what's right with it from a government perspective that they've got the infrastructure mm -hmm. and it's easier to fund them and it's right. easier to get exactly. the contracts and grants uh, novated and processed. Mm -hmm. Well, this doesn't help us, particularly in the South in these red states where you've got a super majority and the states are defunding us. Mm -hmm. yep. North Carolina is in a very unique position. Yeah. 
okay, they're doing well, but they're not doing well because necessarily what North Carolina A&T did. The state issued a bond initiative which enabled them to expand their capacity. Well, in the other red states, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, uh, Georgia, Alabama, the states are defunding the HBCUs, okay? Even in Florida, it's gone to a performance-based funding structure. Now, Florida A&M is having challenges with funding. So I'll stop right there and not lecture you, but I just encourage you to continue to do what you've done. Don't get discouraged. Take some chances, because that's what a firm action is. Well, Take let me chance. say this. Right now, um, NIS is working very closely with the White House Initiative on HBCUs, with Jonathan Holyfield and Dr. Haynes and all these folks like that. And we established this year a, a, a White House cluster which includes all, pretty much just about all the federal agencies that are in this area. And we're lucky enough this year to have on our cluster uh, Dr. Wooten, who was OFPP. And what we're looking at is this. You know, we can talk about everything on this but what we don't recognize is there's no real legislative yeah. policy for yeah. HBCUs. Yeah. Now, we as federal agencies, we can't lobby Congress for you. Mm -hmm. You know, this is something you, you all have yes. to do. Yes. Because we, I mean, even in this cluster meeting we have, I have a meeting with Dr. Wooten next week. And, you know, the point is, is that the FAR, HISAR for HHS, DFAR for, for uh, uh, DOD, and the other uh, government agencies that have their supplements to the uh, federal acquisition regulations, there is no policy in it. It mentions HBCUs, but there is nothing in there that will tell the acquisition folks, because my people come to me all the time. And then, where is it in the FAR that says that I can use an HBCU, like it talks about going to a small business, an 8A, a hub zone? There's no, no socioeconomic category mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. There is no designated yeah. Yeah. designation for you. So again, that's one thing. We can sit here and turn our wheels and act like we don't know, but there is nothing in the federal regulations that requires us to go to an HBCU. Now that, again, I have to say, that's what the schools are gonna have to do. Now, some of the schools have gotten a little savvy and they've gone to the Small Business Administration and they've gotten themselves designated as small businesses in your state and local area. So you can go after contracts for that in your state and local. But if you wanna play with the big boys in the federal sector, we have got to have some kind of policy, and I, and, and that is it. You know, I, we, I you know I'm out here every day. I'm not losing faith in what we're doing with you. I'm not losing the uh, momentum. But one day I got to retire. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and we're trying to set it up so that somebody can walk in and start this thing all over again. But you know, again, I say you got to help us to help you. And that's all I have to say about it. And, and I will be but, on it. But, but, but one thing that I'm saying, Virginia, mm -hmm. Maryland, North Carolina, right. are different from Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, politically. Oh, okay. Our congressional delegation is mission impossible. Hmm. You know, well, the senior citizens of Alabama were sessions in Shelby. Who's one of the most powerful senators in the Senate now? It's Shelby. Mm. Shelby won't even take a meeting with us. Oh, now how many times have we asked? Maybe 200. Mm. Okay? Mm -hmm. At least we get a meeting with Sessions, but he 
occupies the time and space talking about um, yeah. uh, whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know he's running again. Right. Uh, so these are realities that we have to use Washington to help us yes, balance. Yes, you do. Yeah, okay? you do. Yeah. Because the same problem is in Louisiana. Even right, though they have right. a Democratic governor, he's handcuffed because he's got a supermajority in both the mm -hmm. House mm -hmm. and the Senate. Mm -hmm. You get so, what I'm saying? So I want to just re-emphasize what, what Annette said. Maybe then you have to go to those states and partner with those uh, HBCUs mm -hmm. and those presidents. Exactly. Because let me just give you one quick example of what happened um, when we started this excellence in research program. NSF was not going to put any more money into HBCUs as sort of a, a special program, right? We're already being congressionally mandated for this. But there was one strong college president, I know who he was, in a blue state with a red governor, maybe now you can sort of figure out who that person was, who, who relentlessly went after uh, the congressional delegation. Well, and lo and behold, now they gave an additional 10 million and then 18 million. Mm -hmm. And I know that's not enough for every single HBCU. Mm -hmm. But one thing it does, that little bit of money will benefit not only that state, but all of the other states. So maybe you in those lost cause states, you know, where you have no one to go to. And I, and I, I gosh, I sympathize so much for the states mm -hmm. where the states take mm -hmm. the little bit of funding away, yeah, you know, from the HBCUs that you've traditionally had. Already you've been underfunded severely and now it's mm -hmm. like adding insult to injury right. exactly. so but maybe partnering with some because you can't move out of your state you know you are where you are i don't know what else we can do but that's what you can do on our end rest assured every single day every single day we all have to stand up and justify why it is what we're doing and for whom we're doing it. And we're willing to do that every yeah, single day, exactly. trust us. Right. And there are a few, in my building of a thousand people, I have about 15 uh, colleagues who are on my side and are willing to make a pest of themselves like I am. <laughs> and I have a few at NIH too. I mean, we, we, what we've done <clears throat> is we've reached out to HBCU alumni and ask them that, that are there, mm -hmm. can you help us in your institute and center figure out what can be utilized by an HBCU? Um, how can we rally together? And we've had a few, we've had attorneys, we have scientists, that, that's how Howard received that grant. Uh, we had a, a town hall meeting, and we had we had people, program people that came from all the institutes and centers, and from North Minority House, and that's how Hampton got an opportunity to mix and mingle, and they won they won that two million dollar grant, and they're now, as as we pointed out, getting money from their state. But believe me, we are here. We are out there fighting for you every day. Ms. Owen Scarborough and the panel and participants, we have one minute left. Okay. <laughs> and so I, I want you to get a chance to ask, ask your question. We might have to take it out to the outer area to finish it, but go ahead. Okay, no problem. First of all, thank you very much for the informative uh, presentations that you provided. I have a sim simpler question. A lot of what we've been talking about is kind of a long-term strategy. You seem to indicate that there's a lot of money being left on the table still. 
So addressing that, what do you see as the, as the primary um, impediment to people taking great advantage? Is it, the, is it understanding the process? You mentioned being able to write proposals and task order statements and those kinds of things. What would you recommend or suggest that HBCUs do to take a greater advantage of the opportunities that are out there? Let me kind of jump in real quick. The, the first thing is to start to try to build a relationship with the people on the panel. That's the first thing. We support you. We're here for you. We, we're doing everything we can possibly do to help you. But you have to help us help you. Reach out, call us, talk to us on the phone, and we will help guide you through the process of how you can be successful with our agencies. Yes, he said it all. Yes. Yeah, he did. <laughs> so with that, we will close. I want to thank the panel again for your remarks and for the information you've given us. I thank our audience. I have a couple housekeeping. Thank you for listening to Federal Research Funding Opportunities for HBCUs for GFY 2020, a professional development seminar featuring Assistant Vice President for Research for Bowie State University, Dr. Anika Bisahoyo, Program Coordinator for the Air Force Office to Scientific Research, Edward Lee, Small Business Program Manager for the National Institutes of Health, Annette Owen Scarborough, Program Officer in the Directorate for Education and Human Resources for the National Science Foundation, Dr. Claudia Rankins, and Director HBCU MI program for the Department of Navy, Anthony Smith. If you've enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference. For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.baya.org. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.